What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Shattering Superstructure. On this episode, we have the great Boots Riley speaking about his new TV series, I'm a Virgo, his movie, Sorry to Bother You, some of his musical work, and a little bit about leftist politics and the current genocide against Palestinians in Gaza happening right now. Uh, it's a wide-ranging conversation, and I have a very special co-host with me on this episode, my brother, Aaron. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. First of all, you know, I'm a Virgo was a fantastic series. I just oh, I absolutely loved it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Oakland is a is a huge character, you know, and both sorry to bother you and I'm a Virgo. Yeah. Um particularly with I'm a Virgo. Uh so was there what was the impetus of this series and was there ever a part of you that didn't want to set it in Oakland? Oh no, never never a part of me that didn't want to set it in Oakland. I mean, um you know, you, you write what you know. So um, not just because that's all you can do, because you can write other things you don't know. And it's certainly valid to do that. Um, but to me, um, you know, the specificity, the details of anything is what makes it feel more human, right? Um, so much of TV is set in a place that could be anywhere. And, um, you know, and we had those problems with this. We had to fight for as much Oakland as we could get. Um, but I think so much is like, you know, supposed to be, you know, XYZ place, but it's filmed in Vancouver or, you know, whatever. And, and what you end up doing is having a lot of stuff that um, where the shots are picked based on it not looking like the city that it's in. So you have a lot of the film where the shots are chosen um, in the same way that someone might choose someone to marry based on the fact that they are not abusive and that's their criteria, you know? So it's not really... Um, why you want to choose to marry someone it's also not why you want to choose your shots you you want things based on what what you feel tells the story the best what conveys the best emotion you know whatever it is that you want you know um and that specificity is what you know what makes things so and what's sorry to bother you um a lot of it looked and felt so different mainly because we shot it in a place that I knew and I had ideas about, okay, we're going to do this at this gas station with the train going by, or, you know what, this show is not about people being homeless, but we're going, we're going to drive by this homeless encampment, things that you wouldn't normally put in things because, and you know, it does tell part of the story, the specifics of it. Yeah. Yeah, no question. I mean, um, you know, 
and pivoting to like the the characters and and their roles in society in this and i think both of your works but specifically in i'm virgo um there's a sense that people with superpowers are sort of confined to to being workers without a ladder to climb um and we don't really see any impositions of power except the hero who's not really a hero right and mm -hmm. it's it's like they're so undervalued and they control very little of the means of production. So um, what was intriguing to me is to seeing how these characters can unite and sort of spark uh, a revolution. And you have sort of two different conversations. Um, it, it starts between, you know, Jones and La Francine and it kind of evolves into two parties um, and sort of how to go about this. So what went into those two sort of um, approaches? Um, and in terms of Jones is all about, you know, starting this groundswell movement. And I think La Francine has, well, we need to have a face for this movement. And yeah. it's going to take and, and that That is uh, maybe putting forth their ideas that have something to do with Cootie. Um, but it also represents uh, in the real world um, kind of what got very popular with the new left uh, from the times of the new left and on um, <clears throat> in which things were more about spectacle than they had been in, on the, you know, uh, for radicals before that. Um, the, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, from in the 20s and 30s, there were a million card-carrying communists in the United States. And um, <clears throat> strikes going on all over the place. Um, <clears throat> it was just after uh, a revolution in the Soviet Union, and there were... Um, and 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 there was militancy even in things that weren't so radical like the bonus march right you had this march going to uh washington with people carrying guns and um you know ar ar around bonus checks that were supposed to be gotten for veterans and <clears throat> with that combination of of things happening with you know tens of thousands of people marching in the street that weren't just demonstrations, but were from specific industries saying, here are tens of thousands of people that will shut you down if you don't do this and if you don't do that. There was a different kind of movement happening that was, a, that was thought of as possibly being able to turn into a real revolutionary movement. And it was in that milieu that um, there, that, that we got stuff like uh, welfare and social security and Medicare, um, <clears throat> things like that. It wasn't because there was some leader at the top, uh, but during the United Front Against Fascism, in <clears throat> part of it was that uh, revolutionaries here were not going to try to make a revolution while the US went and helped the Soviets um, defeat Hitler. And so a lot of people went underground. 
Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that made way for after the war in the fifties for there to be able to be finger pointing at folks saying, Hey, these folks are uh, radicals, they're communists, they're revolutionaries, and they haven't been telling you because while they went underground, people started calling themselves progressives or whatever, right? And so, um, you know, whereas then it was true, they hadn't been telling people for 15 years who they were. Um, had it been 15 years before, people would have been like, yeah, I know they... He told they told me that that's our strike was part of this revolutionary movement and, or they helped me, you know, uh, not be evicted. I knew about all that. That would have been the thing. But because of that and because of uh, splits that happened in the biggest uh, radical organization that there was in the U.S. due to uh, revelations around the cult of personality that happened with Stalin, things like that. Um, that organization split up. And from those, from that, those splits came uh, groups that became what we called the new left. And many of the folks that joined the new left uh, and, and, and the folks that came out of the, the, the old movement uh, said, well, we're going to do this different. We're not going to be underground. We are about to be in your face. And people were like, we are revolutionaries. But the differences in the, one of the big differences was they started focusing on students and started focusing on, on cities and they left behind. And I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. They, but, but in general, they, they subtracted themselves from on the job organizing and labor struggles. Part of that was they were being pushed out of it, but uh, radicals never just let the fact that they were being pushed out of something, you know, end up with them being, you know, being pushed out. There was a there was a tactical decision to uh, move into other areas. Um, and in the time that I talked about before with the 20s and 30s, um, the FBI had had called places like Montana, Utah, Oklahoma, uh, Alabama, had called all those places hotbeds of communist activity, right? So then in the 60s, all those places were being moved away from, um, geographically and, and, and politically being moved away from. Uh, <clears throat> and, and so if you're focusing on students um, and, and, and focusing on problems, um, from a place where you are um, just exposing certain uh, problems of oppression, then uh, what ends up happening is more spectacle, right? So um, instead of a 20,000 person march where everybody's from an industry where they say we can shut you down, and that was actually a demonstration in the sense that it was a demonstration of power, um, then you might end up having a 5,000 people demonstration at a college in which people are saying, we hate this, we don't like this, and no connection to uh, what power the working class has. Um, and at the same time, 
you had revolutions happening all over the the, the world the world and some of them um more radical than others but you had everything from independence movements to actual revolutionary uh communist uh, or socialist movements happening and um the new left here was as they should have been excited by that and so and many times the the new left uh tried to aesthetically simulate what was going on in those other countries while having skipped over the phases that those other countries went through to get the that. like the maoist movements in the colleges in the 60s and stuff oh. yeah um and so um and so there was a lot of focus on um you know things adventurous things like chase stuff which did not create any revolutions at all um and 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 also you know uh focusing on him as opposed to what happened in Cuba you know just months before the revolution which were all of these strikes that made that possible right, right. um and so there there was a lot of focus on that and and, and I think that what came about from the 60s and, and 70s in the new left um, hugely affected the way uh, people worked, even through through me coming up and even until recently. And I think there's a, a big change now in that. Um, and we have the strike wave happening. And so I think what we see um, in that conflict uh, what's represented in that conflict between uh, uh, between LaFrancine and Jones is um, is is you know Jones wanting to build build a viable revolutionary movement um, and and one that starts with um, the ability to uh, to the showing people what class struggle is and and through the ability to uh withhold labor um and 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 wanting wanting to do that um and and so i think that what ends up happening is um you know and and lafrancine representing some of that the that new left position yeah yeah absolutely um and, and like jones does she's you know she's got the fruit fill rent strike she's um she's got uh the eviction campaign and her housing speech at the hospital is is incredibly powerful too and there's also more subtle things like um uh, you know, Elijah Wood's character, like, how is he going to change the death penalty? Well, he's going to become an executioner mm -hmm. um, and kind of conversations about how, you know, the they're going to basically incent change. Um, wh what I thought was most interesting about her speech is she kind of uses her power to get a hold of of Cootie, who up until that point I would consider, you know, the lumpen proletariat, and he's finally con 
converted into a maybe a proletariat only because he's been sheltered for all his life right he doesn't mm-hmm. really he's just starting to realize it and it hits him like a brick wall um so i think there are some examples of this on on very rarely on film and tv but you know how do we in real life convert the lump in proletariats to the cause well i think uh in in real life uh it, here's the thing is you 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 move based on where you can and and so i think um when there is a large movement people look for how to get involved often people don't get involved in things uh because they don't see it being able to to help they don't see it being able to to they don't they don't yeah they 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 think that it's as powerless as they are and um what people are attracted to even in um capitalist culture is the the idea that it's not just oh they can they hope they can attain wealth but people want a sense of being able to control their surroundings um you know that's what people look up to they look up to you know oh, this dope dealer they could do this and they did that and they made this happen and you know or you know they might even put that into whoever the famous capitalist is of the time right and um but there's a sense of being able to have some say in the world you know and i always say that with you know like with <clears throat> old there's song with songs of like Jay-Z or whoever is um you know because I, I honestly don't listen to a lot of the lyrics of the new stuff but um you know what they're talking about is not just what to the listener is not just wealth what they're hearing is someone that doesn't have to deal with their lights getting turned off that doesn't have to deal that that has the power to uh you know supersede the problems of the system and um so people get attracted to that idea right, right. and 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 when a movement gets big enough it starts making gains then people see that and they see it as powerful as something they should be involved in and so i i think um you kind of you start with with the folks that are you you start organizing at the places where there's power so that's why i talk about um organizing on the job i mean because i mean i look at it <clears throat> like this you know living in oakland for instance you know, people's often people's favorite subject to talk about are the black is the Black Panther Party, and I know a lot of those folks. You know, and you know, I did work with David Hilliard, who was former chief of staff of the Black Panther Party. Elaine Brown, uh, former chairperson of the Black Panther Party, all sorts of the alumni committee, all of those folks. Um, but I have a principal criticism many principal criticisms as you should of probably any group that does anything you're right 
Um, but one big one is think about it like this. At the time when the Panthers were going strong in Oakland, there were factories in Oakland. People had factory jobs. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, they did not talk about organizing around any of that. Matter of fact, David Hilliard came out of Longshoremen, right? Right. Um, and so what they were attaching on to was this sort of new style, and we're going to organize the lumping. But most Black folks weren't even lumping. Yeah. Right? Right. Um, and th- that doesn't mean people weren't unemployed, but they were also thinking of themselves as just uh, temporarily unemployed, thinking of themselves as, you know, so the there there was a boat that was missed with that. And so right now, um, the thing that that inspires the lumpen proletariat is this idea of something that's stable about capitalism, something that's powerful about it. And so they'll come along once we organize the working class more. I see. Yeah. You know, my brother and I have conversations about this all the time. You know, he's in PSL uh, North Bay and it's just like, uh, you know, well, first of all, what happens leading up to the revolution? What happens next? I mean, in theory, um, obviously you have Marx's stages, but it's just, uh, I often think of two of the Frederick Jameson quote, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the destruction of late stage capitalism. So it's, it's, I think, but the more we have conversations about it, you know, the, the, the more we can be on a united front, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's the only way to do it. Yeah. One one thing I I think about a lot is um like we're seeing this wave of strikes and um labor struggles that are are making real gains and um you know talking about the the kind of retreat to the universities and um you have the kind of retreat inward with the new left especially getting into the eighties and nineties. Um, and a lot of the uh, workers of today, they 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 don't have that language. Like there wasn't um, that sort of a very clear kind of a orthodox Marxist like analysis that people maybe gave in the twenties and thirties of you know why you um, utilize your ability to to withhold your labor in order to get gains, but people are coming to those realizations on their own. And I know within the various, you know, unions, there's, there's uh, plenty of people that can illustrate that, but um, I've always felt like there is a kind of a missing generation uh, between the kind of older, maybe old school leftists and then the, the new movements. And is, is that an issue or is it, are these sort of power dynamics so obvious that they just, people come to the realization on their own. Does that make sense? Well, well, I think things don't get organized without people organizing them. So mm-hmm. they, it won't, you know, you need people to do that. And and I would say that in the twenties and thirties, there were people that were 
outwardly saying, you know, they were led by th those things often were were led by folks who were openly radical and yeah. uh, talking about these things. Um, th their skills were maybe sometimes in talking about the same ideas in a different way than say an academic would, right? Um, <clears throat> because they're changing it based on who they're, they're using the language of the folks that they're communicating with. And, um, but uh, yeah, I think that there definitely is, um, I, th I think what's happening right now is that there are a lot of rad radicals that that are getting involved in labor struggles and um that didn't exist as much as it did as it, that didn't exist in the last 30 years as much and although that definitely did exist it's it's around and what i said about the 60s is leaving out some amazing exceptions right of course and um but uh so yeah there there is a um there is a, a gap but what i found is that even those folks you know the older new left folks are willing to come around it was kind of like i think there was an i there was an idea with the folks that stayed around from the new left that stayed radical that um, the working class wasn't ready. Mm. So this is was the reason that they kind of retreated. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one of the reasons I got involved in music was because while I was, you know, organizing beforehand, I would see people getting into rhetorical arguments with folks that they thought disagreed with them. And, um, and and I, I I thought that I could have, um, you know that I could could uh, bridge that gap right there, um, and but but yeah I think that <clears throat> it, it's interesting because I remember a couple years ago when the first big bump of the strike wave was happening, and I was talking to this guy who's a uh, well-known radical longshore guy and um I don't remember what it was but he was talking to me about something fairly small that he was trying to get he's retired um and uh I was like telling him about the strike wave and he almost didn't believe me well not almost he didn't right He's like, I haven't heard anything about this. This is blah, blah, blah. And of course, he soon looked it up and saw it. But there is an isolation that happens. And sometimes that might just be age, you know. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, within political circles. And, and, and I think what's happening now is people are becoming inspired by each other's work. So... Yeah, it takes like just one big victory to open the floodgates. Sometimes that's what I feel like. And I think we're slowly seeing that. And like, I love the soundtrack too. You got Mac Dre 
keep the snake in E40, which is uh, essential, I think, to adding to the sort of milieu you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so was that always your intention to have um, barrier native artists on soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's based on, yeah, definitely. Um, not that people in the Bay Area only listen to Bay Area artists, but you look for things that make you feel the texture, the specificity of things. So, yeah, that was definitely a, a, a big thing. And sound and music is the way I make people think they're enjoying what they see, right? And, uh, you know, that's that, like, the the big part of it so much of our brain is dedicated to um figuring out what sounds are much more than the part of our brain that's dedicated to figuring out what we see so um it, it doesn't necessarily i don't know if that then makes a correlation with how important it is to us in our brain but it is very important to us i mean it may just be that um there's just more to figure out, right? But um, but yeah, uh, so sound, the score being tune yards, and then the the uh the 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 sound effects and the and the soundtrack is what's is all something there. We had the score to the show. Um I mean before be, before we had sold the show. So we had a lot of the score stuff. So, and speaking of sound, the cartoon it, it's it's great throughout the, the series. I especially love the Zizek cameo, the voice oh, yeah. cameo as a baby. <laughs> um, I I think um, I took it kind of as an allegory for how we propagandize pain and and depict it as necessary for success and. Um, also how you know capitalism can affect the most vulnerable um but also you know i think that um you say so in the film and this kind of aligns with zizek's pervert's guide it, it, it's all art is is propaganda right the hero even says it himself um so a do you believe under our you know at this probably an obvious question under our you know ideology that all art is sort of political and propaganda and jones is you know call it her superpower she basically wades people with art and i think it's no coincidence that you chose zizek to do the uh um to do the voiceover for that right yeah so uh what went into that sort of thought process and in your opinion, what does the cartoon sort of represent in our society? I mean, well, I, you know, a lot of my things, I start out with just one thing and it grows into a whole bunch of stuff. So I, I really um, started thinking about what, what makes, what, what makes me, what, what are things about the real world that we don't, get on TV. And when you can figure out some of those things, sometimes those are pieces that 
bring you in. And so um, often growing up, um, you know, my my father would say to me, like, you know, you're sitting here spending hours watching TV uh, because you think that's exciting. And if you notice something about the people you think life is exciting, they're not watching TV. And um, and and so the truth is, though, that we all spend so many hours of our life watching TV or shows on some sort of screen or something like that. And so I was like, well, you know, what makes their world is also what they are what the media they're consuming. So I was like, okay, I need something that they are consuming. And um, <clears throat> and so I decided to, that we should have a show in which um, the writers of that show um, really wanted to write something that they thought was really important, but, uh, we're forced to do that in a certain way so that there was a, a catchphrase that people and, and people thought it was funny and that what they were were, were um, writing was about and, and they were depressed and they thought they were the shit. Right. So they're, they're pretty uh, pretentious writers as well. So um, the. So the so you know that that was where we where we started with it, um, and then um, you know because because also what they are doing they don't they don't have any answers about it all, it's mm -hmm. just there, and um, you know and uh, the. The funny, the the part about it that's being funny, which is the boy, yo, 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 yo. Mm -hmm. You're talking about uh, the, the the dread of existence and the the fear of not existing anymore, and um, having it consume uh, cares about the way the world is going. And, you know, and those are things that, that are real, that we all deal with. Right. That, um, and I think I talk about that, like, so in, in sorry to bother you, those sorts of things. And how do you connect? How do you, how do you make yourself feel more alive? And to me, that's through connecting with the world and the best way to connect with the world is to change it. And um, and uh, and so these are uh, things talking about real fears, but um, as if they just as if it's just there and that it is the most important thing to worry about. And so that's what those writers are putting forward. Um, and. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that answered no, the question. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, it's speaking of like, 
sort of getting through to the masses. I think social media is, um, it's inevitable that that's going to, you know, reach a lot of people and change a lot of minds. And I think, you know, especially what's happening right now in the current genocide in Gaza, um, there's so much misinformation out there. So it's like, how do you, how yeah. do you sort through it? And how do you try to counteract, you know, the sort of more fascist right wing leaning Zionist talking points, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because I, I don't know. Um, I think that um, one, okay. I'm always trying to show people how they can change things, mm -hmm. right? I I don't, I'm not, even on social media, I'm not normally just posting about things that are like, here's something terrible that's happening in the world, mm -hmm. right? That's usually not what I'm doing. I think maybe that's different now that I am doing it because uh, the way to change it is not necessarily clear um the idea that you know the the idea which is something that was put out in the 60s that we did lie to people about which is you raise your voice loud enough yeah. you show your anger and those in power will hear you and be scared Create awareness, right? It's that awareness yeah. thing that was has been so big in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years that yeah. And, and what that relies on is this falsehood that we live in some sort of democratic society. Um, and, and it's the falsehood that is free speech, as if the speech actually does um uh, can can change the way things are. And so um, what I was excited about, about the growing um, labor movement, is that there are ways to change things. We saw, uh, uh, we saw some, some radical ideas being born in all of that. You, we saw that when people thought what was needed was ventilators, we saw the, the workers at Boeing shutting down and one of their demands was that they want to make ventilators instead of jet engines right mm -hmm. um we 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 see strikes from school districts like chicago la and oakland where uh people are striking um and and you know beyond their demands for better pay, you're also seeing things that help out homeless people, that make it so that the community can have a say in the budget, things like that. Um, and then you see things like with the, the with, um, you know, the writer strike and, you know, mm -hmm. things like that, where in which, um, you know, a, a, a group of the folks that were striking were striking for things that weren't affected them but we're affecting folks on the lower rungs you saw that with the threat of the strike uh with the ups where people were where where the full-time workers were uh ready to go on strike for the part-time workers and so we're seeing that growing so we're, we're seeing things in which 
there could be situations in which policy changes could come through shutting down industry. Um, and uh, with protesting a war, yeah, it's it's a little frustrating because, you know, what what are you, you know, like we saw with the, the with uh, the protests against the Iraq war, millions yeah. upon millions of people in the street. Um, and there was some sense through the 90s when we would do demonstrations that even knowing what I knew, like, oh, maybe if there were mm. millions of folks in the streets, then we can, you know, we could get on. And you see, like, there's there's uh, certain groups where their whole um, thing is protest, RCP or whatever. It'll be like, you know, if you could get people out there and show your anger or whatever, right? But, yeah, that's not how capitalism works. So there could be things in which you had the workers shut down ports, which right. is starting to happen in Barcelona and Belgium. Um, you could have... It happened here in Oakland a couple of years ago. They they uh, sent an Israeli, I think, tanker back. They didn't let him in the... Yeah, definitely. So those can and, and it's starting to happen with shutdowns from the outside, but shutdowns from the outside, I don't think yeah. are going to we're not going to be able to do that because people can't stay there for that long and you're not going to be able to spread it out in the way that you need to do. So there's a certain amount of radical organizing um, that has to be done in order to do that. Maybe the disgust with the uh, genocidal acts that are happening might be something that motivates people to join these strikes uh, and 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 do something. But I think um, that's that's the only hope. I do think there's something necessary in with something like this, for instance, which is. Um, I think this war could be used to try to move people to the right, you know, and I think it's important to, and, and for instance, in the milieu that I happen to be involved in now, which is Hollywood, um, yeah, you know, there are a lot of folks there Um that are against the uh against the atrocities that are happening in and to Gaza um who um feel like they might not have a job if they speak out right yeah. so that they can't and the ones that are comfortable speaking out um are the obviously uh, are sometimes the ones who are um agreeing with the Zionist movement. So um, so there becomes a perception that, um, especially since a lot of those folks have big platforms, there becomes this perception um, among average everyday people that um, the, 
the bombings and invasions and uh, killings in Gaza are somehow justified. And so I think it's important for folks to know that everybody hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid. Um, but, you know, I, I, and, and I think it's important to have demonstrations so that we let the community know that there are people against this. I just am, what I'm concerned with is figuring out how to turn it into something empowering yeah. um, because it can easily become something that um, dissuades people from doing stuff. Well, we, I feel like there is a fracture happening and um, I'm, I'm hoping it can turn into something because you still have the people in media and entertainment, a lot of them uh, because of their like material incentives or personal beliefs are sort of towing this Zionist line, but it just, it just doesn't seem to be working as much on regular people. And, and yeah. I, I do feel like there's going to be a reckoning for a lot of the people that, because we're watching this happen in front of our eyes and people, I mean, you know, Israel mows the lawn every few years and it just, is a blip in the news, but this is, uh, this just feels different. And I, I, I really feel like people are not falling for it. Um, oh yeah. I, don't, I, I think you're right. Yeah. About that. But how, where does that, where does that go? I mean, um, besides just kind of disgust with the people in power, I mean, the 2008 crash showed the volatility of the finance system and how corrupt it is and yet people just know that but carry on normally you know and so yeah i guess that's always the question is how, how and i, and how I think that that has so much to do with what people think can be done yeah. with yeah. us showing people um what the mechanism is what the mechanism of power mm -hmm. is for them and um you know, that is why, you know, I think that be because, yeah, I I think that if, you know, dock workers around the world, for instance, said we're not having any trade yeah. or uh, or or, uh, you know, war materials sent back and forth from Israel and the U.S., you know, it would have to be with the U.S. as well. Yeah. Um, then uh, you'd start to see some some pressure, um, but but I think a lot of people do kind of feel like, well, what is there to yeah. be done? What, you know, um, and and yeah, it, it it's I think I think for instance had you know had it you know we, we've got this militant um this uh labor movement getting uh getting growing and uh it's starting off but say something like this happened in 10 years from now and it, we had that same rate of growth then you could be like hey we're gonna shut this down we're gonna shut that down we're gonna you know do this um 
but now I still think that's where the work has to be because people do understand that that if that were to happen, it could it could help. You know what I'm saying? It could stop it. Uh, the question, you know, I think it's a huge question of whether, you know, um, we have the organizers in place to get folks to do that, you know. Um, and uh, but but it's it's possible, like you said, we had longshoremen um, pledged to do that before um, and, and doing that before. Um, and we have movements and we have unions in other countries doing that. Um, and it's it's a chance even for some of the uh, the more uh, established liberal unions to uh, to show to show relevance, right? Yeah. They, they could do it for those reasons, especially if they know that their uh, that their uh, rank and file uh, would respect them for it. Right. So those are possibilities. I don't you know, there's Congress, there's congressmen writing campaigns, things like that. I'm not against any of them. I just I don't have I don't know. I don't have any any uh much faith in that at all yeah and like you know what would like there's a there was this post i saw a while back that was saying like you know genocide is the new blood libel uh tearing down hostage flyers is the new crystal knot and i don't agree with obviously the tearing down the hostage flyers but you know the hamas charter is the new mind comp I just feel like these comparisons uh, should be insulting to everyone, but there's so many people that are going like, oh, yeah, you're so right. Thanks for speaking out. And it's like half these people don't even know that the U.S. is funding the IDF. And it's just like, so yeah. how do you respond to something like that if it's even, you know. I mean, you just respond to it one by one. You, you, you say, well, look, you want, hey, uh, we want the hostages returned too, and here is the way Hamas said they'll return the hostages: yeah. is trade them for prisoners. So if you want the hostages returned, that seems like the simple thing. Actually, it's what the families of the hostages are asking to be done. Right. right. So if someone is putting up return the hostage posters and not saying that in the poster then what they're calling for is war and calling for something that won't return the hostages. Right. right. So um, there's just simple logic with all of it. And you may not convince that one person, but the people around them and the people around you, they, they respond to these logics and it, it's tough because that's been sort of the strategy of the left for for the past 40, 50 years is like, just convince people. Um, and it's so hard because like I said earlier, like uh, we've lost a lot of the language and sometimes the language I use, it doesn't feel strong, it falls flat, you know, it, it might be outdated or something. But what I respect so much about your work is that you're showing, you're, you're showing the mechanisms. You always show the beginning of the groundswell and, and what comes after that is up to the people. But 
um, even through sort of like the the kind of magical realism elements you put in, you're showing very like material um, possibilities of of how you can change your environment. Um, and I think you don't need you know Marx's language to show people that you just need to point out how things work, and it's it yeah. becomes self evident after that. Yeah, I mean that that's the whole thing. the The question is how does it how do people uh engage with the system that they're in how how do they engage normally and how would they what are the things that would get them to engage in a way that changes it and um you know so that's that's just kind of where where i take it from and um you know it it, it you know all fantasy all sci-fi any of that the people that write it they have a view of the world and um they're writing about what they think is important in the world they're writing about how the world how they think the world works you know what it is about it so um it's it you know and and so but but sometimes when we have an alternate view of, of how the world works alternate from what has been fed to us um we unconsciously uh tailor that thing that we're writing or creating to fit with what we've seen in sci-fi or fantasy or or any film and you know for that matter in there and so um often i'm having to remind myself what I believe about the world. Like as I'm right, like, okay, how does this fit in? How is this working? Is this, you know, that sort of a thing. Is there an example you can give in uh, in some of your works? Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, like, like let's say, sorry to bother you for, well, well, I'll say this with all of my songs, I had to do that as I'm going, like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll write out all sorts of like brainstorming things because you could be writing a lyric and you have this awesome thing that will, oh my God, that'll make people will be like, you're the best lyricist ever. But then I have to be like, okay, does that actually fit with what how does that contradict what I'm saying about the world right there? Yeah. And so I have to be like, okay, that, that, you know, I'm, that's not what I'm going to say. This is what, this is what I think is the main contradiction. And then that will create some other lyric that, that I like. Right. And then, um, so, or like with, sorry to bother you when, when, when I was writing it, and I got to the part with Danny Glover. Um, I knew I wanted to talk about how people try to sound white on the phone. And I was going to do it with that same monologue he gives, but it was just going to be like him, you know, trying to just doing it with his own voice. And then we see uh, and and <clears throat> but then I was like, OK, does that express everything I think about that idea? Like what? How do I put that in there without 
having, you know, two minutes more dialogue in there, right? And then even then, um, what I knew from, from things is about, you know, you make people feel something, you make them go through something. That's what people are doing when, you know, the reason why organizing is important, for instance, the reason why having people organize on the job and do work stoppages is important is because those those are things that people go through that show them how class works in, mm. in under capitalism it doesn't just tell them they see oh we're on strike and the police aren't coming to protect me they're coming to protect the boss that mm. that going through that experience is different than even watching it on a movie or reading about it. It's 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 a different kind of, of thing. So with with the movie, I'm 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 trying to bring people as much as possible, bring them through a experience, make them feel something, use things that are that textures and sounds and, and emotion to make people feel like they're going through something. So that thing, how do I make them? the the feeling of what it feels like uh, how disembodied it feels and i was like okay well it's going to be overdubbed and matter of fact it's not just going to be overdubbed for the audience we're going to understand that the people in the film experience it as an overdub so um you know that those are things and that that those are things where i have to like think about whether the thing is really giving, you know, putting everything that I think about the world in there and how, I, you know, and so that had to do with, that has to do with how I think people experience ideas. And have you had a, a relatively like smooth path to expressing your ideas or have you encountered any instances of like censorship where you had to fight back against um whether in music or film tv i mean you know always i mean you know as you're creating something you don't necessarily as you're writing something or something like that i i, I have luckily i've been on labels that you know, even though they're just as capitalist as the next, their way of doing things was just like, oh, we want to do something that's organic and sell the organic thing to that crowd or whatever, right? And so it, it hasn't been from there. But with gatekeepers along the way, definitely. I mean, sometimes people telling me at the time, sometimes people telling me years later that this particular thing happened and they worked at this place. I mean, uh, one of the first things that I found out about was like, we have a song, Fat Cats and Bigger Fish, that um, this woman, Mona Lisa Murray, um, wanted to prove herself to Wild Pitch and she kind of snuck it onto the air um, at what is that? 105.9 in LA. I forget the name of that power 106 or something like that. And, um, and, and it got popular there and um, then was getting on the radio all the time. Uh, and up here, 
it wasn't getting on KMEL because they were like, oh, we think it's just your fans calling up. So they wouldn't, you know, and I'm like, okay, yeah, if somebody's calling, they're a fan, right? But um, but at a certain point, um, it was selling enough per week in any in the two places it was being played on the radio um, to go platinum, meaning like if they had spread it out to other stations. But it became clear that EMI, EMI just took it off their their list and said, "Don't play this anymore," and uh, and it had nothing to do with, even though it was growing all those sorts of things. So that was pretty crazy. But a lot of stuff all along the way, like like little things like that, um, uh, where. Uh, you know, think yeah, things just didn't happen because I didn't play ball in certain ways. Um, but it didn't stop me. It wasn't censorship that stopped me because I could just go around and do something else. But it just wasn't, you know, the the path that got me, um, you know, uh, got it really well known. Um, I think with film, what happens is. Um, you know, there's a lot of there, there's there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, a lot of people that feel like they they are your friend and that they'll tell you how this goes. So there would never be anything overt, you know, that was ever said. One of the reasons is, is that everybody thinks that they are not part of the system. Mm-hmm. Every that's just how it all works. We are all part of the system and we all think we're not. So a lot of people will agree with everything we're talking about. But um, they might be like, well, maybe this part or this part is boring. You know, I've definitely had that on both projects. This part is boring and it's maybe one of the most exciting parts of the thing. But, you know, like so it would never be that sort of thing. Interesting. And um, do you have a project that you're working on next, film or TV wise, or a new album? Yeah, hopefully, if if the strike is over, we'll be shooting um, something that is inspired by my song "I Love Boosters," and we'll be doing that in March. Awesome. Uh, yeah. That's Very great. Cool. Would that be in uh, the film or TV medium? Film. Oh, that's great. Um, it's going to be take place in Oakland? In the Bay Area. Bay yes. Area. Okay. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, I can't wait for that. Um, yeah, Boots, uh, can't thank you enough for your generous time. Uh, it's been really insightful and great hearing from you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Hey.